Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and teaching of his word. Father, we just are continually uh, brought back to your throne, grace. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning through the, the teaching of your word. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, open our eyes to see the, the truth, the beauty, the glory that is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help me, uh, Lord, to communicate your word clearly. Lord, and I pray that you'd protect uh, myself and, and the hearers from, from any error, um, Lord, or misunderstanding. So we ask that you would be the one who, who gives us understanding, Lord, who gives, gives us a desire to understand, Lord, and that we would humble ourselves before your word, uh, because you are God, and you are the one who has all truth. Father, I ask that you'd give it to us this morning. Amen. The Beatitudes, or the sayings, found in Matthew chapter 5, should be understood in two ways. Before I give you those two ways, I'm going to give you two other ways that should be avoided, ways that we should not understand them. And this will be somewhat a review of last week, uh, rewarded and and cut down for for time's sake. One way of understanding them that we need to avoid is to see them as a way of gaining God's favor gaining his blessings in our life. The thought is, well, if I, if, I, if I try to be this way, if I try to have this certain attitude, um, then, then God will bless me. That is an error. The second way is similar, and that is to view them as stair steps to heaven. Stair steps to enter the kingdom of God, or how-tos to enter the kingdom of God. I do not believe these are good ways to interpret the Beatitudes. In fact, I think they're, they're anti-gospel. They're against the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes are not an entrance exam, but rather they can act as a litmus test. Well, what's the difference? They are a way to determine the state of our soul. They're a way that we can measure up and see if we are of the faith or not. They're a gauge to examine ourselves so we have a good reading on where we're at with the Lord. We'll return to that way of understanding later on. But the second way to understand them, in addition to a litmus test, is that they are sayings of wisdom. Jesus is sitting down here as a sage, as a philosopher, as a rabbi, teacher in the Jewish culture. And he's teaching us how to have the best life, how to have a happy life flourishing life. He's praising a type of lifestyle that, if followed, will lead his hearers to a fuller, happier life. He's inviting them, even challenging them to to, to find true, true happiness, to live this way 
that will result in their flourishing, both in this life and in the next. We talked last week at length about the idea that the word blessed here is not receiving God's blessing, but means living in a state of blessedness, living in a state of happiness, of contentful bliss, a life that is flourishing. And what I'm entitling this series, The Good Life. I hope that as we work through these verses and these sayings over the next few weeks, we'll begin to understand them and see them as wisdom. We will see them in the way of living the good life. And I hope that this interpretation will be more and more evident to you uh, as we progress. And not only that it will become evident to you, but that it will actually become the natural way of reading them. So our text this morning, you can probably even repeat it with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Despite the difficulty and really the impossibility of narrowing down the Greek word for blessed into one English word, um, we still want one. (laughs) We still want to say, okay, well, Jesus used one word to communicate this idea, so surely we should have one that fits. Well, there have been many, 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 many words that have been offered up as translations, and I'm just going to kind of give you some, aside from the word blessed. Happy, flourishing, accepted, peaceful, content, satisfied, welcome, good job, congratulations, good one, way to go. Really, it's just a a genuine way of happy congratulations. That is really good for you. I'm really glad this is going on in your life. I'm really glad that you're able to have this kind of attitude. That is great. You know, we say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's the way I read it. And it's kind of solemn. It's serious. And when we do that, we actually subtract. We kind of take away from the celebration and the complimentary nature of the term. But I think for now, we're just going to stick with the word blessed. Um, Though I might change it up here and there whenever uh, I think it suits um, or is appropriate for uh, the topic or the point at hand. Now, one of the reasons we say these Beatitudes so solemnly is because of what Jesus is saying is blessed, right? Here, he's saying blessed are the poor in spirit. You, you, you don't want to say that in a happy way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yay! This just doesn't sound right. I mean, the, the poor in spirit is, is solemn. That is serious. When we hear that being poor poor in spirit, we often think, well, that just means someone who doesn't think they're noteworthy. Someone who maybe just wants to stay in the background. Um, 
or maybe even someone who's lacking in zeal, someone who doesn't have very much passion, someone who doesn't have very much courage, they don't have very much spunk in life. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. So, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus uses this word poor. We automatically associate that with an economic value. We put money. You're either poor or you're rich. And that means you either have plentiful amounts of cash at your expense or you don't. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He's not referring to someone's economic status or how much money they have in the bank. This word poor means lowly. It means contrite. It can mean humble. And this isn't a new concept. Jesus isn't saying anything new here that God hasn't already revealed in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, we read, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. So right there I'm going to stop before I continue. This verse is setting God up as being one who is high, who is lifted up, who is magnified, who is exalted, who inhabits eternity. You and I inhabit a space and time. We take up seconds. God inhabits eternity. It's trying to show his vastness, his greatness. And he says he dwells in the high and holy place. He dwells in the heavens. And also... So he's, that's not the only place he dwells. He doesn't just dwell in the holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. That is amazing. That God, the transcendent being who created the cosmos, he doesn't just dwell in heaven. He dwells with him who is contrite, who is lowly of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He revives the spirit of the lowly. And he revives the heart of the contrite. Isaiah, this is a theme in Isaiah. One of my favorite verses, maybe in all the Bible, one of them, I mean, I have, you know, a couple hundred, right? Is Isaiah 66, 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Meaning, I live in heaven. You can't do anything for me. If I have a need, I'm not coming to you. Because you offer me nothing. All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. 
But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If I have a need, I'm not coming to you. But if you're lowly, if you're humble, if you're contrite, if you're poor in spirit, I'll look to you. For God to even look at us is, should be awe-striking. Because we worship a God who is three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect community. They have no need outside of the Godhead. For eternity, the Father and the Son live in the spirit of love with the Holy Spirit. For eternity, the Father looks at his Son and sees perfection staring him back in the face. Beauty staring him back in the face. The Father adores, or the Son adores the Father for eternity. They have no reason to look outside themselves for any reason, for any purpose. And yet there is someone to whom they will look. He who is lowly. He who is humble. He who is contrite. And he who trembles at God's word. He who puts himself bare before God's word. Trembling means I put myself in submission under you. You have the authority. And what you say goes, you have the right of life and death over me. Whatever you say is my fate. It's as if a serf would go before his Lord and he knows that whatever is spoken on that throne determines the rest of their lives. We don't know what that feels like because we live with a government of democracy. We have representatives. We can call them up and complain. We can write them letters and complain. They do something we don't like. We can vote them out of office. We're talking about the idea of absolute authority. And this perfect absolute being will look down on the person who is contrite, the person who is poor in spirit. So poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. Now we need to be clear there. It's not man's belief that his existence isn't important. It is not that man has no inherent value. It's not, oh, I might as well not exist. I don't, I don't matter. That's not the idea of being poor in spirit. It is the belief and confession that we are without moral virtue that's adequate to commend ourselves to God. That God has no reason to be pleased with us. We have nothing to be proud for before God. Many men will come to God on Judgment Day and say, Look what I did, God. Aren't you proud of me? And God will say, No. 
you think that's good, that's garbage. That is a hard truth for prideful people to hear. But it is the truth. Jesus is kind to tell us the truth. Because the truth is what sets us free. He doesn't want us to be deluded into thinking that we have something to offer God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have to be poor in spirit to recognize your poverty before an almighty God. Poor in spirit, lowly in heart. It is the acknowledgement of one's need for God. And that is the conclusion of our inability to do right by Him. In other words, helplessness. Blessed are the helpless. You always hear that God helps those who help themselves. That stands in direct contrast to this beatitude. Now, when that's said, it's often said you need to do something. God made us as doers. He didn't make us that we would sit back and just fold our hands and cross our legs and say, okay, God, whenever you're ready, I'm waiting. No. He wants us to be active. He wants us to be doing things. He made us to work. But when it comes to our spiritual poverty, we are helpless before God. We do not have what it takes to please Him. And we have to acknowledge our emptiness. That is only something that the poor in spirit can do. The proud man, the arrogant, cannot acknowledge their emptiness before God. They puff out their chest and they beat on their breasts and they say, look at me, look what I did. Cute. That's what God says. There are several examples of being poor in spirit in Scripture. One of them is Gideon. Gideon can be viewed as an example of being poor in the spirit, though it's not often how we think of him. The story ends with Gideon and the army of Israel defeating the enemies of Israel battle after battle after battle. They have victory. But the story begins differently. It begins with Gideon hiding away Harvesting his grain, basically cleaning his grain in a wine vat because he doesn't want raiding parties from his enemies to come take his grain. He's hiding away. And God calls Gideon to go and deliver Israel from her enemies. And Gideon wants to be sure. I kind of feel like I'm Gideon sometimes. Are you, are you sure that's what you want me to do? That doesn't make sense to me. 
How about we just double check? So Gideon asks for signs. And God delivers. Gideon has to trust in the Lord. And the only way victory was going to come to Israel is if God orchestrated it. Gideon says, I'm not going to go fight those battles unless I know you are coming because I can't do it. That's what it means to be poor in the Spirit. I don't have the ability to do this, God. So if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. Translation for us. I cannot save myself, God, and if you don't save me, I will not be saved. The poor in spirit are those who know that God has to be the one to do it. Because we don't have the power. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We don't have the ability to live a righteous life in and of ourselves. They rely completely on God because they are too familiar with their own weaknesses to be deceived into thinking that they can do it. Another example comes from Luke. It comes from a parable that Jesus tells his disciples. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. In those days, they didn't pray like this. They prayed like this. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We are creatures who exalt ourselves. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves to other people. We're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. We try to prove ourselves to God. We seek to elevate ourselves. We do it from a very young age. It just seems to be a part of our nature. But the person who is poor in spirit knows they're standing before God apart from Jesus Christ and they accept it. They embrace their poverty of spirit. And this causes both humility, excuse me, this causes humility both before God and before man. Finally, Paul, 
Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that there's, there's nothing good lives in me. That is my flesh. Me in and of myself, apart from the God's work in me, there's nothing good that lives here. He says that all the stuff that he worked so hard at before he became a Christian, all the things that he thought would make him honorable, all the things that he thought would make him praiseworthy, all the things that he did that, that so that he could climb the ranks of the Pharisees and the Jewish tradition, he says, all of this I count as refuse. I count as garbage. The things people try to draw their self-esteem from, the things people try to derive their self-worth from. Paul says all of that is garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. There was nothing good in that stuff. I was deceived into thinking that I could make myself somebody reputable. That reputation is worthless. When we base our self-esteem and our self-worth on the value of the world, on the values that the world has, we're going to get what the world gets. That's going to be judgment. That's going to be emptiness, futility, a chasing after the wind. As I said before, God did create us to work. And there is a sense in which when you work and when you provide, when you're active, when you produce something, when you mow the yard and can see it all nice, there is some, some, something good that, that wells up in you that, that, that's proud and that's good and right. But God, though he made us to be doers, he made us to be productive, he made us to contribute, and there is a sense of happiness and fulfillment that comes with that, God, does not, God is not concerned about our production. He's not concerned about our output the same way the world cares about it, the same value system that the world has. He's much more concerned about how we reflect his glory. That's what he made us for. He made us to be image bearers. We are to reflect who he is. He defines our worth by how we reflect his glory. That's what he values. And you know what the truth is? We suck at it. That's the truth. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. To acknowledge that in and of myself, Lord, I have failed to reflect your glory. I have failed to live as you live. I have failed to be like you. We need him to restore us. We need him to redeem us. We need him to enable us and to sustain us so that we can be the best image bearers we can be. And we can't do that without the power of the Spirit. 
We reflect his glory, not for our glory. We reflect his glory, not so that we'll get the praise. We reflect his glory for his glory. Because it honors him. Because it fulfills our purpose. And when we do this, we are blessed. We are happy. We are fulfilled. And we flourish as individuals, as human beings, because that is what we were created to do. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is redefining what it means to be part of the people of God. I said this earlier that it is a litmus test, a way of assessing if one is in the kingdom or not. This is not only done by, or excuse me, this is not done by checking off a list to see if we meet certain standards, to see if we've given the charity, or if we've prayed the right prayer, or if we've fasted enough, or if we've been to church enough, or we've dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's. This test is a matter of the soul. It is an overall manner of life. It involves our attitude, our thinking, our view of ourself, our view of God, our view of others. You know, Jesus repeatedly gives stipulations for entering the kingdom of heaven. Your faith must must exceed that of the Pharisees. Only those who do the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't mean these things to be achievements. He doesn't give them to us so if we accomplish them, we can have a plaque on our wall that says we're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. They're not Christian quests so that we can level up in our Christian walk. We don't ever arrive in this life. We don't get the plaque here. We don't get the certificate. Jesus says things like this to show us how helpless we are before him. He tells them to us to show us our need of a savior and as a way to help us gauge whether or not we've been changed by our savior. The only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be changed by the Savior. The only way to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is to be changed by a Savior. The only way you're born again is by the work of the Holy Spirit. We started in our adult Sunday school the book The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. We didn't get there today, but in the next chapter... He talks about God's sovereignty. How God doesn't need anything from us. We we try to level with God. We try to get to the point where we can negotiate with him. Okay, God, well, I serve you, so that means that you have to give me such and such. And he just looks at us and says, I already own you. You just don't know it. 
He says, if I want your life, I can take it. How does that sit with us? God has the power of life and death over us. And we think we're going to negotiate with him? We literally have nothing to give him to get him to move on our behalf. The only thing we can do is to throw ourselves upon his mercy. Sometimes we lose sight of God's grace and mercy because we think we're negotiating with him. But when you come to the point where you're poor in spirit, you come to the point where you embrace your emptiness, you come to the point where you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, you realize that God's mercy is all we have. If God is not gracious to me, I will not receive grace. If God does not have mercy upon me, I will not receive mercy. So here's what we do. Be poor in spirit. Embrace the emptiness. Embrace the need. Paul says later, I actually believe it's in Corinthians, I will boast in my weakness because it is in my weakness that I am made strong. I will boast in the fact that I can't do it Because I can't do it, that means God does it. This character trait of being poor in spirit is difficult for us humans because we are proud creatures. We want to show the world how good we are. We want to show the world how high we can jump, how fast we can run, how smart we are, what we can build, how good we can be. We are high on ourselves. And we think more of ourselves than we ought. We think we have something to offer, but not before God. We don't think about ourselves honestly. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us to do. No matter how bad we wish we thought about ourselves honestly, no matter how much we've convinced ourselves that we are objective people, that we see ourselves as we truly are, we don't. Jesus tells us to be poor in spirit because being lowly and contrite, being humble is the only way to see our need for him. It is one thing to talk yourself up before people. It is one thing to talk yourself up to yourself, to try to muster up some kind of self-esteem or self-worth. But when you do it before God, it's laughable. It's foolish. And worse, it is haughty. It's arrogant. It's prideful. And you know what God says about the prideful? God hates the proud. That's what scripture says. The proud, the boastful, the arrogant makes the list of those whom God hates. God sees right through us. 
He knows us better than we know ourselves. The problem is we don't. And Jesus challenges us to see ourselves for what we are. Jesus challenges us to embrace our helplessness before God. That is the only way to live a blessed life. That's the only way to live a good life. That is the only way to be in the kingdom of God is if we are contrite, if we're lowly, if we're poor in spirit. But notice one last thing very quickly. The blessing that comes from being poor in spirit is not a direct result of being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The difficulties that come with being poor in spirit only last a lifetime. And they're the way to living a good life. But they overflow into the life to come. Jesus is inviting us into the kingdom. He's inviting us to live a blessed life, both in this world and the next. And so there really is only one question. Are you and am I poor in spirit? Will I embrace my helplessness before God? Or will I balk at it? Will I reject it? Will I say, I mean, I have, I have something to offer. I mean, I'm good at this. Or I'm, I'm, I'm kind. I'm sensitive. I care about people. I mean, surely that means something before God. The poor in spirit goes to the cross empty-handed and says, Jesus, I only have need. Forgive me. Save me. Renew me. And make me yours. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us your word. I thank you that you deal honestly with us, even when we don't want to deal honestly with ourselves. Oh, Father, give us the humility that it takes to see ourselves as we truly are. Give us the strength to endure it. Father, and don't leave us there. But redeem us. Fill us with joy. And let not a joy that's based upon our righteousness that we have in ourselves, but Lord, may it be a joy that we are infused with because of the joy and love and peace of the Spirit. Father, I ask that you would do this, Lord, for the salvation of souls. Lord, that you would get the glory. Lord, that your kingdom would be plentifully populated. Lord, and I ask that you would do it within us, that we would be a light to the community of Glasgow. All for Christ. Amen.